You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Reading today from Malachi 2, 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the spirit and let none of your faithless to the wife, none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says to the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. My name is Ryan. Really grateful. Uh, to see you this evening. Thank you, Christina, for your faithfulness. Thank you, worship team, for your faithfulness. Really appreciate it. Uh, the guys in the back doing AV, we appreciate you. People who are serving with the kids right now, we love and appreciate you. Really grateful when people come along and and engage in service. That's one of the things that the church is for, so I'm grateful to, to be a part of that and to see that happening. In my first car was a 1990 Nissan pickup. It didn't even have a name. Like from the factory, it didn't have a name. They just called it pickup. It was a little truck. It was like a two-seater. Um, it was like made of aluminum foil. This thing was just janky. Every once in a while, I'd be turning, and the driver door would open. So there were all kinds of surprises like that. Like my windows would fall down, and I wouldn't be able to fish them back up. All kinds of things. But I got this truck for free, and it was wonderful and I, I really I really enjoyed I really enjoyed it. There were things about it though that were a little like other than the doors opening randomly and the windows falling down. There were some things about it that you know I really I didn't love. Like it leaked a lot of oil. Like a lot. Um, and I I was typically on top of it um, but there was like this one stretch of time where I didn't really think about it and I was driving from where I went to high school to my folks' house, which was about three miles, not a huge deal, and then my oil light clicked on. And I was like, I'll be all right. It's like three miles. I'll be fine. So I'm driving. I'm probably listening to some bad music in like, you know, 2002 or something. And all of a sudden I start to smell something, like something burning. And I was like, oh, well, you know, it's, I'm like a mile from the house. It's going to be okay. Then the burning gets really bad, and I start to see smoke coming out from under the hood. And I'm just like, okay, like I can see my parents' house. It's right there. 
and I, I kind of roll through this stop sign and turn into the driveway, and it's dead. Like I'm hitting the gas, and it's doing nothing. So I put it in park. I run around. I pop the hood. It's like billowing smoke. So uh, blew a head gasket, and it was more expensive to have the head gasket repaired, which is part of the engine. It holds the engine together. Um, than the truck was worth. So it, it went to the wrecker. It was, it was gone. It was gone. And I was kind of disappointed with that. Um, I, since then, so I was like 16. Now I'm, you know, older. I, I kind of like am a car guy. And so I look back at that and I go, oh, that's disappointing. Like I'm disappointed in myself. What's the point? As I'm driving the car, the truck, back to the house, my folks' house, when that red light clicked on, I ignored it. I'll be all right. I'll be fine. I'll be all right. I'll be fine. Uh, the, the smoke started. I started to smell something burning, and I ignored it. And I was like, nah, that's not a big deal. I started to see smoke, and I, you know, ignored it. I could have pulled over and just, like, put it in park and been, been done, called my dad or whatever. But I ignored it until the car blew up, like until the engine was dead, like dead, dead. Can't fix it. Uh, it's over. The car needs to go away. So what were all of, those, all of those warning signs? What were they? Well, they were pieces of evidence that were suggesting to me, hey, something's wrong. Something is not right. First the light, then the smell, then the smoke. Something is not right. Warning signs. In our series in Malachi, one of the things that he's doing is pointing out warning signs. He's saying, hey, here are some things that are coming out in the community. Here are some things that, that I'm going to put my finger on. And they are bad. They're a problem. But they reveal a deeper problem. There's something else happening. Pieces of evidence that we can see. They could see. Malachi could see to put his finger on that revealed a deeper problem like the light in my truck. Like the smell of smoke and then the sight of smoke. They revealed a deeper problem. And in a similar way... What Malachi is doing today in the text is revealing a deeper problem. He's pointing to two specific pieces of evidence that reveal a deeper problem. So with that said, I want you to see three points from the text this morning. First, identity and faithfulness. Second, ever-present idolatry. And third, God and divorce. But before we do that, let me pray. Our Father, thank you for your love for your people, for us. Thank you, Lord, that like the last song we sang tells us we can run to you and find that your arms are open wide to us like the Father in Luke 15, running to his wayward son. And that's what you do for us. That's what your love is like. So, Father, open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts tonight as we look to your word that we would find wonders in it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Malachi is pointing out the people's faithlessness in the text by pointing out two examples. Now, these two examples, they're evidence. They're evidence of a deeper problem in the people's hearts. They reveal a deep spiritual rot that's happening at the core of, of the community. Cold, bored, hard hearts to God and the ways of God. Now, in my view, um, one of the reasons 
that he, well, my view, he, he starts this critique. He starts the critique by reminding the people of their identity. He reminds the people of their identity before, the, before starting the critique. So look with me at verse 10, if you have your Bible. He says this. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? I want to draw your attention to a connection in the text that Malachi is making. He's saying, hey, your identity as a child of God, our identity as children of God, is connected to faithfulness. It's connected to faithfulness. Notice the third question that he asks in verse 10. Look back. Look back. It seems to me that he's pointing out the fact that the faithlessness in the people, the faithlessness in the people that they displayed is out of step with their identity, with their identity as children of God. So, so, so now we have to ask the question, okay, why does that relationship, why does that relationship between uh, children of God and faithfulness matter to us? Why does it matter to you? Now, it matters to you because of what Paul says in Galatians 3, where he says, Gentiles like you, like me, have been grafted in. We are the true children of Abraham, the true children of God, through faith. Through faith. That means that through faith, God is your father. That means that through faith, you are his son or daughter. So there's an identity thing happening here in Malachi. It's it's, it's deep. It, it goes to the, 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 the very core of who the people, who we are. Malachi seems to be making this connection between identity and faithfulness to God. One follows the other. One follows the other. So that the question that he asks in verse 10 highlights this connection and says, hey, something's wrong. This, this relationship has lapsed. Something got in the way. So now you have to ask, okay, why does my identity as a child of God affect my faithfulness to God? Or, um, better yet, what short-circuits that connection? What gets in the way? What's a barrier? What makes you look like the people to whom Malachi is writing? So in general, we could say sin. Sin gets in the way. And, and we think broadly, like, yeah, sin breaks absolutely everything. Everything is touched by sin, introducing brokenness into all kinds of things. But at the same time, we've got to be super aware and super specific, critical. How does sin affect specific areas of your life? Not, not, not generally, but specifically. How does sin impact the way you make decisions? How does sin influence your feelings and emotions? How does, how does sin inform your desires, the things you want, and what drives you? You see, there are cascading effects of the brokenness of sin that we can see. You can see it in your life. You can see it in the people um, with whom you have close relationship. These cascading effects get in the way of this relationship between our identity as children of God and faithfulness to, to God. The truth is that your identity as a child of God changes you like you're not the same. Several, several places in the New Testament talk about the internal change that happens when a person through faith comes to Jesus. You were dead, now you're alive. You were old, now you're new. 
You were an orphan, now you're a son, now you're a daughter. And, and you feel faithless a lot of the time. When I talk to a lot of people, to know that many of you feel faithless a lot of the time. I do. I feel faithless a lot of the time. So what should we do about that? How should we understand our identity and our propensity to be faithless? How should we understand that? One of the ways, one of the things that we need to know is that our hearts are in constant need of change. My heart is in constant need of change. Like the Lord did that for me. He did that for you if you're a Christian when he saved you from your sin and you became a new creation. Like, like these texts we just, we just briefly talked about um, suggest. But like that's not the only time. Like I need my heart to be transformed all the time. Like all the time. All the time. And so do you. And so this is one of the ways that God is working. He's working to help you drive home the truth of your identity into your heart. To really massage that deep into your heart so you know who you are as a child of God that has the power to change you to be faithful opposed to faithless. So, how does he do that? That sounds good. You're like, okay, fine. How does that actually happen? One of the ways that he does that is by reminding you of who he is. He reminds you of who he is. He is love. He is your loving father. You see, sometimes, sometimes I have this sneaking suspicion that when we talk about the love of God, because we talk about it a lot, sometimes there are some of us who have the propensity to check out. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know that. I know that. So I want to encourage you, don't check out. Don't, don't check out. Because what we want to do is think specifically about the love of God and how it connects to you in a specific way. So, so for, for right now, let's think about how God's specific fatherly love for you, how does that work and how does it change your heart? All right, if you have your Bible, flip over to 1 John 3. 1 John 3, we're going to pick it up at the top, verse 1. I'm just going to read a little bit of verse 1. If you write in your Bible, like underline, highlight, this would be a good one to, to write, to highlight. Uh, verse 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So here's one example of, of, of what God's love for you does. What does it do? It transforms you, it turns you from an orphan into a son, into a daughter, a child of God. But let's go a little bit deeper than that. God's love for you that made you a son, that made you a daughter, it, he must have known everything about you when he made that choice. Otherwise, he's not God. Like you didn't hide anything from him. So that must mean that his love is understanding, that it's patient, that it's gentle, that it's merciful. Why? Because God knows who you are. The good, the bad, the ugly, he knows who you are. He understands your weakness, your struggle, your sin. And listen, he loves you the same. He loves you the same. 
He knows that you are often faithless, like the people to whom Malachi writes. You didn't fool him. And he loves you the same. So it's, it's, it's a truth like this. The fact that God's love for you has its eyes open. It understands. It accounts for your weakness and your struggle and your suffering and your pain and your questioning and your unbelief and says, I love you the same. How do I know, God? Because I made you my son. I made you my daughter. So it's, it's that kind of love. We think about how do hearts change. It's the kind of love that accounts for me like who I really, really am and says, I love you. Who you really are and says, I love you. Like really are, I love you. See, these are the kind of things. His love is one of the ways that he transforms our hearts to love him more. Understanding his love helps us love him more. It stirs our affection for him. It makes me ask the question like, okay, if he loves me like that, what must he be like? Because like, there's a deep sense in which I think that all of us in all of our lives are looking for a love like that, that understands who I really am, that understands who you really are. No facade, no. Who you really are and says, I love you. That's what God has done. That's what his love is like. So what must that love be like? Again, it must be, it must be secure. Like I can't lose it because it's not like he's going to learn something about me that's going to be a deal breaker. He already knows. It must be patient. It must be kind, gentle, merciful. And as a weak child, as weak children, that's what we need. That's what we need. So it's through, it's through deep and specific exploration, application of the love of God that our hearts change. And so when, when our hearts change and, and, our, and our, we begin to, our identity as children of God becomes to, it comes to the forefront and I start to actually live like that, it leads to faithfulness instead of the faithlessness that we see in Malachi and the people to whom he's writing. So don't get bored when we talk about the love of God. Don't don't go to a place in your mind where it's like, yeah, yeah, I know that. Check. Let's move on. No, 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 no. Don't move on. Because this is one of the means by which God actually changes you. Through greater understanding of his love, you learn to love him more. But let's remember what Malachi is doing here in, in chapter 2. He is, he is reminding the people of their ide- identity and then moving to show how their identity is out of step with the deep heart problems that are, at, that are on display in the community. So the first one of those issues is idolatry, is idolatry. So this leads me to the second point I want you to see tonight, ever-present idolatry. If you've got your Bible open, look with me at verse 11. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married a daughter of a foreign god. In the Old Testament, one of the ways that God intended to protect his people from idolatry was to create separation or space between them 
and the pagan nations around them. This is one of the reasons why he discouraged people from, his people from marrying foreign folks. It's not because God was racist. It's not because he didn't like these other people or, or, or whatever. No, it's because of idolatry. In other words, marrying a foreign person who worshipped a different God over and over and over again in the Old Testament results in idolatry and apostasy. Over and You can think about individual cases. You can think about the nation as a whole. In fact, between the conquest of Canaan and the exile, idolatry is Israel's principal problem. And it is the reason that God, after, after hundreds of years of patience with them, disciplines them through Assyria comes and takes away Israel, the northern ten tribes. And then a few years later, Babylon comes and takes away Judah, the southern two tribes. The ten tribes in the north never come back. But after 70 years in Babylon, the two tribes from the south do come back to the land. They've given the opportunity to come back. Now, the exile is a watershed moment in the Old Testament. It is enormous. You have like the, the exodus and the exile. These are like the two watershed moments in the Old Testament. But as, as, as important, as impactful as the exile was, it didn't fix the problem. It didn't fix the problem. Because here, Malachi, who's writing to the post-exilic community, puts his finger on the same issue. The same problem. The point is that idolatry runs deep, really deep. So even now, after Jesus has removed your heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh, even now after he's written his law on your heart, even now after he's given us all the Holy Spirit, idolatry is still present. It's present in me, it's present in you. So I want us to think critically about that for a minute, but specifically, what, what drives idolatry? What drives it? Like in, in our context, maybe we're pretty decent at, at seeing it and calling it what it is, but, but let's go underneath that. What drives it? What gives it its power source? Like if you put gas in your car to make it run, if idolatry is the car, what makes it run? What makes it run? The answer is love. Love makes it run. Love for other things besides God. Tim Keller has suggested that there are at least four heart or source idols with which we have to, con have to contend. Control, uh, power, um, approval, and comfort. You know, those four. So think about it like this. What makes those idols run? Well, if control is your thing, and that's an area where you struggle, you know that when you try to control people and other circumstances, often what that ends up doing is creating relational distance. It breaks relationships. It can cause damage, but you do that anyway. Why? Because you love being in control. What about power? You like to win? all the time, like when you get in an argument or a fight with your spouse and you try to win at all costs, like you know that that's doing damage to your relationship with your spouse. You know that that dishonors God, but you do it anyway. Why? Because you love to feel the power you get when you win. How about approval? Our culture is drunk on approval. 
drunk on approval. You got people breaking their neck to get approval from other people. In, in some cases, perfect strangers via social media and the internet. Why does that happen? Why do people get sucked into that black hole? Because the feelings associated with getting approval from people are powerful. And listen, we love that. Love drives approval. And then comfort, comfort's easy. Listen, folks love being comfortable. I do. Since that's true, we've got to be super cognizant because like we could, I could like, I could like create a system in my life that only ever leads to my comfort. Like I could do that. You could do that. Why? Because I love being comfortable. Love fuels idolatry. But the solution is also love. Not love for control, power, approval, or comfort, but for God, for the Lord. Our hearts are made. They're made. John Calvin, the 16th century Protestant reformer, has said, our hearts are made to worship. They are made to love. We will either worship God and love God, or we will worship and love something else. That's what's happening here in Malachi. That's what he's pointing out for the original community. That's what he's pointing out for you. Love for the Lord is the solution to love for idolatry. Love for God over time leads to greater satisfaction, greater pleasure in him than any idol could ever offer you. It's his love that changes and moves and deepens and stirs your heart. In fact, that's what you were, you were made to see his love and, and, and love him back. Like that's, that's what we're made to do. That's why nothing else in this world over time can satisfy you. Because you weren't made for that. You were made to love and enjoy the Lord forever. To find satisfaction and pleasure in Him. Let's think practically. So how can your love for Him grow and push away love for idols? How, how does that happen? Like, how do, Ryan, how do I actually do that? Well, Here's, here's, here's one way. By encountering him. By seeing him for who he is. By steeping in his love for you. So let's think specifically. Think about this context in Malachi 2. God is coming to the people and confronting them, rebuking them over what? Here, idolatry. Is this the first time in the Bible that, that the people have fallen into idolatry? No. At this time, it's been thousands of years of the same thing happening over and over and over. This is a well-worn theme in the Bible. Well-worn theme. It's a well-worn theme in your life. And it's into, it's into that. It's into that soup, into that mix. God knowing that for thousands of years, his people were going to forget him. We're going to walk away from him. We're going to choose lesser things over him. God says things like this. All that the Father give me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. So in the midst, like running alongside the idolatry that's in your heart, Jesus commits himself to you. To love you, to stand with you, knowing exactly what's going on. Knowing exactly who you are. 
Think about these sources of, of instability in your life, even these idols that, that come in, and actually what they do is they end up breeding anxiety. God's love for you enters into that instability with stability, into that cause for concern with cause for security. Listen, when Jesus says in John 6, that's John six thirty seven, that I will never cast you out. You can think about all the things, all the excuses, all the sin, all of it, all of it, no matter what you can think of. What does he say? Those who come to me, I will never cast out. Never cast out. That's like E on a fill-in-the-blank, like multiple-choice test, all of the above. It just covers everything. What about this? I'll never cast out. God, my heart's cold to you. I'll never cast out. God, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm suffering, and I don't understand what you're doing, and it, it causes me to question your goodness. I will never cast out. <clears throat> like, I think about, I think about how unbelief actually takes root in my heart and in our hearts. It's really sneaky. It's not something that I'm ever going to get over. It's not something that we're ever going to move past. Like as long as I'm here, as long as we're here on the, in the world, we're going to struggle with unbelief. We're just going to see what God says in his word and go, you know what? I don't know. Somewhere, somewhere in your heart and into that mix, Jesus says, I will never cast you out. Or into the mix where I actually do choose my sin. I do choose idolatry. I do choose to turn away from him for a season and look after something else. Into that mix, he says, I'll never cast out. I will never cast out. Friends, he's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful to you. And it's, it's, it's remarkable. Like if we can sit in that almost like tea steeping. At some point, if you heat up water, it's like hot water, and you don't want to drink hot water. But if you put, if you put tea, a tea bag in there, it's going to steep. And eventually, in your experience, you're going to drink tea. You needed some time. You needed steeping. You needed to sit there and just let the, let the tea diffuse into the water. And sometimes, friends, like we can't be in a hurry to hear John 6, 37, or some of these other passages and be like, oh, yeah, I got it. Let's move on. If you do that, you're going to drink hot water. Rather, sit, steep. Think about all the, thing, all the excuses, all the sin, all your story in your mind. And Jesus says to that, I will never cast out. I will never cast out those who come to me. Steep. And watch your heart change. That's how it happens. That's how we grow. That's how we go from, from like, like cold, the people to whom Malachi is writing, to, to hot, to in love with the Lord, to being taken by him, to being in awe of him. He's faithful. This brings me to the second piece of evidence that Malachi puts forward is faithlessness in the text. And the third point that I want you to see this evening, God and divorce. So most of the time when people talk about what the Bible has to say about divorce, they jump to the head, jump, jump ahead to the end, excuse me, and conclude, hey, there are only two reasons, two biblical reasons for divorce, infidelity in marriage and abandonment. But I would suggest to you that this thinking that does this is truncated and often oversimplified. 
in order to have a meaningful discussion about what the Bible says about divorce, we have to understand at least a piece of the a biblical theology surrounding marriage. So in the Bible, marriage is ultimately sacred because it reflects the relationship between God and his people, Jesus and his church. God describes himself as Israel's husband all over the Bible, like all over. Like I was going to count them for you this week, but there's like too many and I had to move on to other things. All over. This covenantal marriage theme of God and his people is one of the central themes of the whole story. Like you can't tell the story of God without, without this peace, without God making a covenant or marrying his people, committing to them that, hey, I'll never leave, I'll never forsake you, I'll never cast you out, I'll save you to the uttermost, all of these promises. Paul, at the end of the famous passage in Ephesians 5 on marriage, says that marriage is a picture of, of, of the relationship between God and his people, Jesus and his church. So we need this biblical theological context to have a meaningful discussion about the Bible and divorce. So in addition to this biblical theology, we need other passages of Scripture that frame our understanding of what Christian marriage is. Now, today, we do not have time to do that. So, if you want to talk more about that, we would love to talk to you about that. That's a, it's a, it's a topic that we care about deeply, and we want to we wanna have more conversation about that. So you can, you can grab me after the service. You can talk to Pastor Brad, who's in the back. We'd love to talk to you about that. Second, I would point you to a sermon that I preached several years ago. Uh, we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew 5, Jesus addresses the topic. So you can, you can find that sermon on the website. The sermon series is called Right Side Up, the Sermon on the Mount. And the title of that sermon is called Divorce and Remarriage. And it's looking at Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Okay. But now, in Malachi, remember what Malachi is doing. By raising evidence, by pointing at evidence that seeks to help the people understand the deeper problem that's happening. So in verse 13, let's look there. God is speaking. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, the people saying, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she was your companion and your wife by covenant. So God doesn't accept their sacrifices. We've talked about this a lot already in our series in Micah. So the people still don't under, or excuse me, Malachi. I don't know how many times I've actually done that. It's not Micah, it's Malachi. So the people demonstrating the fact that they, they don't know what God's talking about, even though we've already talked about it, he said, what do you mean, God? What do you mean? And then God responds, listen, because you were unfaithful in your marriage, um, I'm not going to accept your sacrifices because they are coming from a cold heart, a hard heart. They are evidence of faithlessness. So evidently, in this post-exilic community, there, there were some who were divorcing their first wife and marrying a younger wife. So it seems to me that based on verse 14 in Malachi, he has in view a type of frivolous divorce. 
Like, it's not okay, he's saying, for you to divorce your first wife to marry a younger woman. Like, that's not going to work. Like, in God's economy, that is a non-starter. The Bible universally rejects this frivolity or lack of commitment in marriage. It's just, it's just not a biblical category. But there's more happening here in Malachi. So let's jump down to verse 16. He says this. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment in violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So the imagery here shows us what God feels about divorce in verse 16. The imagery he covers his garment in violence is an image of brokenness. It's an image that should cast, cast uh, our, our, our ideas on the fact that things are not the way they're supposed to be. One commentator said this, described it like this, an expression for all kinds of gross injustice, which like the blood of a murdered victim, leave their mark for all to see. So it's God pointing out that divorce is a type of violence that causes harm. It causes harm. And that's one of the reasons here in Malachi that he's against it. Because it hurts his people. So let's be clear about what the text says and about what it doesn't say. God is against divorce in Malachi because it causes harm, because it does violence to his people, and because it is evidence of faithlessness. But listen, that does not mean that there are not cases where divorce may be appropriate. In fact, there are cases where divorce may be appropriate. In cases of Infidelity, marital infidelity, in cases of abandonment, in cases of unrepentant abuse. God can be grieved by divorce because it causes harm in principle and accept it in certain cases because of sin and the brokenness of people's hearts. So in the Bible, the Lord tells us, hey, here are some examples of when I might permit a divorce. So in cases of marital infidelity and abandonment. And then we would, we would categorize abusive relationships, unrepentant abusive relationships, as a type of abandonment. The person who is unrepentantly abusive to their spouse has abandoned their marital vows. They've left them behind. And to be clear, God hates abuse. God does not look at an abusive marriage and tell the abused partner, like, hey, just suffer in silence. Hey, try to change your behavior and maybe he'll change. No, stop. God hates abuse. He hates it. And in our view, unrepentant abuse lines up with abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7. Therefore, giving the abused party a biblical reason for divorce. God hates sin. He hates all sin because it hurts his people. When you understand that God's heart beats with compassion for you, like when, he, when you understand that he loves you with the kind of love that would cause him to send his son that he might die so that he might have you, 
when he beats with gentleness and mercy and patience and love, when you understand that, you'll be, we'll begin to understand why he hates sin. Because it causes harm to us. And listen, as a father, listen, if I will, I will die before I willingly allow someone or something to hurt my boys. Like, you're going to have to kill me to get to them. And as much as I love those boys, God loves you more. Far more. And so it makes so much sense that when he sees brokenness, he responds and says, no, no, that is violence, that's harm, and I hate it. Why? Because it hurts you, his children. It hurts us. In fact, God's love for you is so tangible and it's so real that like when he actually had the opportunity to stand in the way of sin for you and put put lay his own life down like i just said i would when jesus was forced to do that he did it's not like hey what i think i might do he did stood in the way to protect you from the eternal effects of sin. So listen, that means because Jesus has done that, because he stood in the way, because he stood in the way of sin for you, because he's raised you from death to life, eventually all of the sin, all of the brokenness, all of the pain, all of the harm is going to be made right. It's going to be made right. In many cases, it's not now. Like I wish it was now. But like one of the songs we sang, sang earlier talks about the how unwavering is our hope. Like in what? Be specific. This, this. My hope is in him because all of the injustice and brokenness and violence and harm that has been caused by sin in the world eventually because of Christ is going to be made right. It's going to be made right. There's great hope to which to cling. Remember in this section of Malachi, he is pointing out um, that faithlessness has evidence. Idolatry and this unjust divorce. But friends, faithfulness has evidence too. It has evidence too. Maybe you're in a season of prolonged suffering. Maybe it's mysterious. And you're fighting to believe the promises of God. That's evidence of faithfulness. Maybe you're seeing little victories over habitual sin. Little areas of, of, of victory. Evidence of faithfulness. Maybe you're, maybe you're feeling convicted by our series in Malachi and turning to the Lord in repentance, asking him for help. Lord, change my heart. What is that? evidence of faithfulness. Maybe you're asking the Lord to awaken your heart, deepen and stir your affections for him. And maybe he's doing that. Maybe he's opening your eyes and showing you his desire to have intimate relationship with you. Maybe that's happening. What is that? That's God. That's God crafting and building and evidencing faithfulness in your life. No matter, no matter where you are, God is inviting you into faithful relationship with him. That's what he's doing in Malachi. That's what he's doing. 
It's truly wild to me as we, as we look through this text that in spite of the people's faithlessness, in spite of your faithlessness, in spite of my faithful, faithlessness, God is constantly inviting us into faithful relationship. That's what Jesus said in John 6. I will not cast out any who come to me. I will never cast out any who come to me. That's what he's doing. He's made all these promises in the Bible, and he's invited you to believe, to come, to taste and see that he's good. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing right now in the text. That's what he's doing right now in your life, inviting you, welcoming you into faithful relationship with him. Let's pray.